Okay, so David and Goliath, maybe a uh, familiar story. I would say probably to all of us, um, whether you were raised in the church or not. So excited to look at this with you guys. Um, but at RUF, like we say every week, we believe that you're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And at the same time, you're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. Uh, and that kind of points out a fundamental truth about us. Let me move this as I explain. Um, the fundamental truth about us is that we are prone to think that we relate to God based on our record. Uh, so when we're doing poorly, we imagine that there's no way that God would want anything to do with us. And conversely, when we're doing amazing, we think that God is lucky to have us. Uh, but neither of those things are the gospel. The gospel is that in Jesus, when we place our faith in Jesus, we are completely righteous and accepted before God. And that is the security that we can live our life out of. Uh, and every semester in RUF, we go through a sermon series. This semester, we're going through one called Every Story Whispers His Name. Uh, it's a story about the Old Testament. Um, and we're kind of our theme has been that the Old Testament shows us the heart of Jesus, and it gives us wisdom for the modern world. Uh, so let me pray for us, and we can get started. Heavenly Father, uh, I am grateful for this time that we can get together. I'm grateful for these students um, who are taking an hour or so out of their week to consider uh, your word. Uh, it's kind of a crazy thing that we come together and we uh, read a book that is thousands of years old and we expect to hear something from you. Um, but Lord, that's, uh, that's how it is, as crazy as it, as it sounds. Uh, so Lord, I do pray that you would speak through your word. Um, Lord, that you would uh, comfort those um, who are weary um, Lord, that you would uh, confront those who are complacent. Um, and Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so I recently came across a hit song from 1984 by an artist named Bonnie Tyler. She was a Welsh singer. Um, perhaps you're familiar with this song. It was recorded for the Footloose soundtrack, and it resurfaced in Shrek 2. Um, the song is called Holding Out for a Hero. Maybe you're familiar. Uh, here, here's how the song goes. Where have all the good men gone, and where are all the gods? Where's the streetwise Hercules to fight the rising odds? Isn't there a white knight upon a fiery steed? Late at night, I toss and turn, and I dream of what I need. I need a hero. I'm holding out for a hero till the end of the night. He's got to be strong, and he's got to be fast. And he's got to be fresh from the fight. I need a hero. I'm holding out for a hero till the morning light. He's got to be sure, and it's got to be soon, and he's got to be larger than life. Larger than life. Uh, I would commend you this music video. It's amazing. It's like just peak 80s. It's fantastic. <laughs> but the story that we're looking at tonight, okay, the story that we're looking at tonight is about God's people holding out for a hero. It's not about them looking for romance, but it's, a, it's deliverance from an actual enemy that wants to destroy them. And if you were here last week, we looked at Numbers chapter 14. Uh, this story that we're looking at tonight is approximately about 400 years into the future. Uh, so suffice it to say, a lot has happened since then. Uh, in Numbers 14, the people were kind of hesitating to go into the land because of all of these uh, big, scary people that were in the land. Uh, but since then, they have since come into the land that God has promised to them. And their time in the land has been uh, kind of chaotic. They've been plagued by kind of internal struggle and then external opposition. 
And this story that we're looking at tonight is kind of a, a huge kind of uh, combination of those things. There's, it's a, a huge enemy that's scary. It's a big external conflict, but it also brings about a profound internal struggle. So as we look at this story, we're just going to look at it under three headings. So first, a familiar enemy. Second, the people's chosen hero. And third, God's chosen hero. So a familiar enemy, the people's chosen hero, and God's chosen hero. So first, a familiar enemy. Um, This passage begins with an enemy that would have been very familiar to the Israelites. Uh, It says in verse 17, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah. Uh, Any Israelite of the time would have been very familiar with who the Philistines were. Uh, The Philistines were a, a group of people who inhabited the promised land. They were kind of part of those big, scary people that made the Israelites kind of hesitate about entering into the land in the first place. And so judging by the fact that the Philistines are still around 400 years later, you can see that the Israelites didn't succeed in their mission to drive these people out of the land. Uh, They struggled against them again and again. And at the beginning of this passage, the Philistines are encroaching on Israel's territory. So the Philistines owned all the land on kind of the, uh, to the west of Israel on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And what they're doing is they're trying to take this valley that would be a gateway into Israel. And the stakes are very high for this conflict. If Israel loses this battle, then they will probably lose everything. The Philistines will break through and there won't be much opposition. But if they win, then then maybe finally they can take the promised land the way that God commanded them to do generations before. So what happens in this conflict? We see that there's this giant valley, and both armies are encamped on either side. It's about a mile in between these two mountains. You can still see it today. On one side, you have the Philistine army. On the other side, you have the Israelites. Uh, But we see that the Philistines have a secret weapon in verse 4. They send out their champion. They send out a guy named Goliath to challenge the forces of Israel And the idea is that Goliath is going to challenge the best person from Israel, and that's how they're going to settle it. If Goliath wins, then Israel is going to be conquered. And if the champion from Israel wins, then the Philistines are going to be conquered. That's how they're going to solve it. Uh, But Goliath was a scary individual, and I think he was scary to Israel for at least two reasons. Uh, He was a reminder to them of both their fragility and their failure. Their fragility and their failure. First, their fragility... uh, As Clay was reading, you might have noticed that this story spends a lot of time describing Goliath. Uh, It says, first off, that he was really tall. It says he was six cubits and a span. Um, Naturally, you know what that means, because we definitely use that uh, all the time. Um, Six cubits and a span, uh, scholars kind of have gone back and forth on what that means. But uh, we can be certain that it's somewhere between six foot nine and nine foot nine. Um, And there are like, you know, attested accounts of people being that actual size throughout human history. So this is not some fantastic thing that the Bible made up. This is an actual large, scary person that we're dealing with here. So he's a tall man. But then it goes on and it talks about uh, his kind of his outfit, his fit, if you will. Uh, He's got, did I sound really cool there? Or really, really lame. That's what it was. Yeah. Thomas is trying way too hard. All right. Um, It talks about him having a helmet of bronze, uh, and he has this heavy coat of mail. He has bronze armor 
on his legs, and he has a giant bronze javelin. Uh, this would have meant that he was technologically advanced. Not only is he huge, but his, his nation has figured out a way to make all of this intricate armor that will keep him safe. And when the Israelites look at a man like Goliath stepping out, it would be a painful reminder to them of the fact that they can do nothing against a person like this. This would have been a reminder of their, of their human weakness, of their fragility, the fact that there are, there are just giants out there, literally here, that we cannot beat. So Goliath would have been a reminder of their fragility, but I think second, he would have been a reminder of their failure. Remember, the Israelites were given this land. They were promised this land by God, and they were told that they were going to have to drive out the inhabitants of it. But they didn't do it. As you can see, we have this Philistine champion here who is confronting them. So when they look out at this Philistine, not only are they intimidated by his looks, he serves as a vivid reminder of the fact that they did not believe God when they were supposed to. When they look at Goliath, he's not only a giant, but he's, in a sense, he's a giant of their own making. It's their fault that he's there. See, Goliath presses in on their weakness. Of course he's scary, but he, he reveals something about the spiritual state of God's people. He reveals their weakness, their fragility, and their failure. And so, of course, he's scary when you're reading this. But the author, I think, uh, draws attention to this in his description of Goliath. There's a lot more going on uh, when you read it a little bit closer. So let me nerd out on this for a little bit because this is really exciting to me. Uh, so the word, you might have noticed the word bronze is used four times in verses 4 and 5. So that is 22 words in the original language, four of which are bronze. Uh, Hebrew is what we call an economical language, uh, meaning that they don't, uh, you don't like just write words all the time. Like it's, you have to jam things together. So if you repeat a word four times in a verse, it's really important. So the word bronze, uh, it's not just talking about how amazing and technologically advanced they are. The word bronze actually sounds like the word for snake. And it's been used as a, a word play in the Hebrew Bible before. So the word for bronze is nechoshet, and the word for snake is nachash. It's like the same vowel, it's the same letters in this instance. And it's kind of an illusion, kind of pointing out that not only is Goliath really scary, there's something serpent-like, something snake-like about him. And then it goes on to talk about his armor. In the ESV, it says it's a coat of mail. Uh, maybe you use the NIV. The NIV says it's a coat of scales. I actually think the NIV is right on that because that's what the Hebrew literally says. It says that he has scaly armor. And this word scales here, it's always used to describe a snake-like creature. So why do we talk about this kind of snake-like description of Goliath? What the author is trying to do is make pretty direct allusions to the snake in Genesis 3. What the author is trying to do is to set this in the, the broader context of the struggle of all of humanity. He's trying to connect Goliath to the one who tempted Adam and Eve, the one who planted the first lie, did God really say. So Goliath is not only a consequence of Israel's sin, he's the consequence of humanity's deepest problem of rejecting God and going our own way. So Goliath, when he steps out, this great serpent, he calls to the people and he says, is there someone who can come and challenge me? Is there anyone who can defeat me? Uh, it's as if he's saying, did God really say the land would be yours? Do you really trust God to keep you safe? 
Are you sure? Are you sure about what he said? So how do the people respond to this familiar enemy who's exposing their weakness and issuing this great challenge? Uh, We see that the people choose a hero. They choose a hero. Uh, So when this enemy... When, uh, when Goliath kind of comes to them, he's, he's a familiar enemy in a lot of ways. Uh, the Philistines have been a problem for them for a long time. And then out of this kind of uh, familiar enemy presenting himself, there's a familiar response. And we see this earlier in 1 Samuel. The people of Israel had been confronted with their weakness. They had been confronted by all of these nations around them constantly attacking them. And they don't have a king. You see, when they're confronted with their weakness, the people cry out for a hero. They cry out for a king. And what they're doing, the the way that the author portrays it, this is a bad thing. It's a bad thing that they wanted a king because they already have a king. They already have the Lord. So when they're faced with their weakness, the people choose to cover their shame with a king that's going to keep them safe. Essentially what they're doing is they're hiding from God rather than trusting him to provide for them. And the man that they choose is Saul. Uh, And Saul, if you're unfamiliar with uh, the Old Testament, Saul is a pretty popular character. But suffice it to say, he's exactly the type of man who a people who are deeply afraid, who are deeply terrified of their own fragility and failure, it's the exact type of person that they would choose. He's like the stereotypical king. He's wealthy. He's handsome. Uh, The description of him says multiple times that he was a head taller than everyone else. He was a head taller than everyone else. Does that sound familiar? He was a brutal militaristic leader. He was a true champion. But he wasn't without his weaknesses. Uh, The moment that God's people were going to come together and make him their king, they, they, they vote on it, they decide, and they're like, where's Saul? We want to make him the king. And he's nowhere to be found. Because he's hiding in the baggage. He's terrified. The author is letting us know that he's not exempt to the same problems that all of the people of Israel have. So when faced with their weaknesses, the people of God, they choose to hide behind a strong man. They choose someone like Saul. How does that go for them? Well, looking back at our passage, we see in verse 11. It says, When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine... They were dismayed and greatly afraid. So it doesn't go well for them. The strong man that they chose is just as scared as they are. The one who they trusted to keep them safe is also terrified. And I think the question needs to be asked, why does Israel go after a leader like Saul? When it seems so obvious that he's problematic when you're reading the story, And especially if you're familiar with the story of Israel, uh, God has been so good to them. God has rescued them from slavery. He has given them an identity as a nation. He's given them the law. He has fed them. He has forgiven their failure again and again. He has been so overwhelmingly gentle with them in their weakness. And yet, they choose to hide behind someone like Saul. Why? Why would anyone do that? Uh, So last September, I ran in a a relay race called the Market to Market. Anyone familiar with that? Uh, So for those of you who aren't, it's a relay race from uh, the Old Market in Omaha to the Hay Market in Lincoln. 
So it's 76 miles. I did not run the whole thing by myself. Uh, you get together with a, a team of people. I was on a team of eight, and I was assigned kind of two legs on this race. So I was assigned a three-mile leg and a four-mile leg. And I've done a decent amount of running before. I've run a couple half marathons, so I was like kind of familiar with running. And so when I was asked, I was like, sure, I'll do it. But I knew I was in for something different. When, uh, when I was signing up, it asked me to like estimate my mile time uh, and to say like how fast I was going to run. So when I saw that, of course, I was like, well, I don't want to put like my actual time. Like I want to put a little bit faster, right? And you know, it's, it's, it's a short, it's a short time. Like it's a three miler and a four miler. It's not like 13 miles like I've run before. Of course I can probably run faster. Uh, and I was thinking that, you know, probably the adrenaline, the fact that it's a short run and it was a little ways off, I could probably train and get faster by then. Um, so I put a time that was about a minute under my normal mile time on there. And so, uh, yeah, 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 it, it gets worse. Um, so uh, life happened. It's this crazy thing when you have a baby, it's really hard to like keep up a schedule. Um, I don't want to blame everything on Louise, but it is her fault. Um, and so, you know, the race came regardless of the fact that I hadn't trained nearly as much as I wanted to. And so I was uh, sitting there thinking, you know, about to run my leg. I'm getting in a car uh, with all of my teammates. Everybody's excited. And I don't want to let my teammates down. Like, I've, I've quoted myself as running a certain time, and I want to stick to it. Uh, and I don't want them to see me as weak. I want to be seen as, as a person who is strong, as a person who is accomplished, as a person who does what he says he's going to do. So how did I respond? Uh, my first leg was the three-miler, and I ran it. Uh, an average of two minutes under my normal mile time, which I'm not telling this story as a flex. Uh, trust me, that will become apparent very soon. Um, so, it, you know, I ran these three miles a lot faster than I normally do. Things were going well. I'm handing the baton thing off. And as soon as I hand it off, like, I get this crazy tunnel vision. <laughs> and things, like, start moving and I'm walking, and my head starts spinning. I'm super lightheaded and like a little bit dehydrated. And I'm like, what is even happening right now? And as I'm walking past the kind of the handoff area where there's tons of people gathered, uh, there's a little area right off the path, and it just becomes clear to me: yes, I am definitely going to throw up right now. Um, and so I, you know, decide to walk a little ways past people. It felt like a, a ways past them, but it was really, in actuality, only about like 20 feet. So everybody knew what was happening. And so I proceeded to go right off the relay race track and just like barfed my guts out for like a solid five minutes. Um, and I, I'm not like a quiet throw up guy. Like it's, it's loud, like you know what's happening. And so, yeah, I threw up. And even worse than that, I, I threw up so violently <laughs> that I actually pulled two muscles in my back. Um, <laughs> And, uh, like, it was just, the pain was real. And so I still had to run this four-mile leg. And it was the most excruciating four miles of my life. Like, I would have to run and stop and, like, lift my hands above my head and try and run. It was, it was brutal. Okay, why do I tell this story? I think we see this same dynamic with the Israelites. And I think we feel the same dynamic in our lives. When we're faced with our weakness we find it much easier to project strength and muscle through it than to be honest, than to be upfront. Something about our weakness just terrifies us. 
Something about admitting our human fragility, something about admitting our failure and sin, it, it terrifies us. To the point that we'd rather do crazy things like try and run way faster than we've ever done before, rather than just admit, maybe I shouldn't do that. Maybe I didn't prepare enough. I think this is why we respond when someone asks how we're doing, like it's a gut response. I'm doing great, even if we're like literally dying inside. I think this is why we spend so much time crafting an image on social media, even though we know deep down, that's not who I really am. My life's not that put together. I think this is why we kill ourselves to get good grades at the expense of our relational health, at the expense of our emotional health, even at the expense of our physical health. I think this is why we can't say no to anything. We just have to keep doing things again and again. This is why when we're confronted with our sin, we decide that we want to white-knuckle through it or deny it. You see, it's much easier to project strength than it is to acknowledge our weakness. But the reality is, you can't outrun your weakness, as I learned literally. Denying our weakness, trying to strong-arm our fragility, trying to strong-arm our failure, it's going to leave us throwing up on the side of the road. It's going to happen. Just like the chosen hero of Israel failed them, the same dynamic happens in our lives when we deny our weakness and try to project strength. But fortunately, um, that's not the end of the story. Fortunately, uh, God didn't leave his people to perish with their chosen hero. God chose a hero as well. Uh, if you would look with me to, to verse 32. Uh, so David, in contrast to Saul, when he sees the giant, what he essentially says is, let me at him. Like, let me at him. You imagine someone's trying to hold him back. Like, David, this, this young, small man, sees this giant, and he's like, who is this guy to defy God? How dare he? And the entire army is, is cowering there. They're, they're afraid of Goliath, and David wants to run straight towards him. And Saul tries to talk him out of it because David is an obvious example of weakness, he says to him, you're only a young person, and he's been killing people since he was a young person. Like, you are going to die. It's a certain thing. You see, David is the runt of his family. He's the youngest boy. He was left behind when his older brothers went off to war. He basically, he's essentially going on like a sandwich run to the front lines. Like he's bringing food to his brothers when he hears all of this stuff. David, in a lot of ways, is the anti-Saul. He's not this tall, wealthy, impressive character. He's this young runt. You see, he can't even fit in Saul's armor. And the weapons that he chooses are, are so puny, he chooses a slingshot to fight a giant with iron weapons. He chooses weakness. And that's where his strength comes from. David doesn't deny his weakness. Instead, he trusts the Lord. And when he's talking to Saul, he recounts these two instances where the Lord had delivered him from danger. This is just like such a crazy humble brag from David here. He said, yeah, there was a, there was a time where I was attacked by a lion and a bear. And, and somehow I killed him. He doesn't just say this to brag. He says it was the Lord who delivered me. And just like the Lord delivered me from these situations, he's going to deliver me from this giant Philistine. So this young, weak shepherd boy trusts God to work despite his weakness. So the story moves on. Uh, David decides that he's going to fight Goliath. Saul lets him. 
So he goes down into this valley to confront this giant. He approaches him without any armor, but with a shepherd's staff, a shepherd's bag, five stones, and a slingshot. And Goliath obviously doesn't take him very seriously. He says in verse 43, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And then he goes on, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. That's got to be pretty scary to hear that from someone who is like somewhere between six foot nine to nine foot nine, and he's carrying this like massive spear, and you have a slingshot. So how does David respond when his weakness is pointed out? When Goliath kind of like puts his finger on the problem here? David doesn't respond by flexing, but looking to God's strength. He says in verses 45 to 47, he says, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. And skipping ahead a little bit, he says, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. And then ahead a little bit again, That all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. And sure enough, as it goes on, the the weakness of David triumphs over the strength of Goliath. God delivers Goliath into David's hand. David runs quickly towards him, takes out his slingshot, slings it, and strikes Goliath right in the forehead. And the stone sinks into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. You see, though he is weak, David shows us God's strength. The people's chosen hero, Saul, moves from projecting strength to actual weakness. David moves from weakness to strength. You see, this is an example of, like in the New Testament passage that we, that we read, God choosing the foolish things in the world to shame the wise. God choosing the weak to shame the strong. God's power is made perfect in David's weakness. See, David's greatest weapon was his trust in the Lord. And he shows himself to be the hero of Israel here. So the question is, what do we do with that? What do we do with this story of David being the great hero of Israel? Is this story meant to encourage us to be like David? Are we supposed to take from this an encouragement to to face the giants in our lives? Or to, to find out whatever our five smooth stones are? to overtake the giant. Uh, I want to say yes and no. Yes and no. There are significant ways that we're both like David and unlike David. And I think those are important. Uh, Like David, uh, we are called to believe God. David, in a lot of ways, is a model believer. Uh, David has the courage to look at what was probably certain death, everyone would think, and still do the right thing. Right, like Saul and the rest of Israel are cowering, and they're afraid, and they don't want to do anything. And David's motivation is like, who is this to defy the armies of the Lord? Who is this to defy the living God? He's a believer. He's a model believer for us. We are called to acknowledge our weakness and to look to God's strength, just like David. But I think there are also significant ways that we're not like David. A couple that come to mind. Well, first off, we are not God's chosen king. That's just something that none of us will ever do. We're not God's chosen king. And we are not called to be the one out on the battlefield defending God's people against their enemies. In fact, if there's anyone that we should identify with in this story, 
It's not David. It's not Saul. It's the terrified Israelites behind them all, looking for a hero. See, they're terrified of an enemy that's too big for them, holding out for a hero. And like God's people in this story, we need a hero. We need someone to step into the valley and to defeat the giant that faces us, the giant of our own creation, the giant that was created when we rejected God, the giant of sin, the giant of death, hell, and sadness. See, we need a hero like David who comes in weakness but trusts in God's strength. And generations later, God would send a son of David to stand in between the giant of our own making and us. See, Jesus was born in the line of David. He was called a son of David, great David's greater son. And he lived a life that many would consider weak. He lived a life of obscurity. Uh, He wasn't taller than everyone. He wasn't wealthy. Uh, He wasn't even particularly good-looking. And yet, he went into the valley to defeat something much scarier than an armored giant. See, Jesus went into the valley to defeat the devil himself. He went to do war with the serpent, the serpent that, that Goliath only alludes to. And Jesus didn't do this by flexing his muscles. He didn't do this by being a strong man. Jesus crushed the head of the serpent by himself being crushed. See, in weakness, Jesus was crushed for our sins. And in so doing, he crushed our sin and shame to the point where we don't have to be ashamed of our weakness. We can be honest. We no longer have to strong arm. Instead, we can look to Jesus in our weakness, knowing that the great enemy has been crushed. You see, in Jesus, we can reject the perceived strength of going our own way, And we can more and more listen to God's voice. I want you all to hear this. Our hope here, the hope that we see in this passage, is not in us facing our own giants. Our hope is not us being able to conquer the giants that we have created. Our hope is in Jesus. Jesus faced the giant that we made. And in him, we are unshakably safe. And the more that we believe this, the more that we can embrace our weakness... And the more that we can grow in understanding God's love for us. Uh, I just want to close with a song that I really like. It's from a band called The Silver Pages. They have Lincoln connections. um, But it's it's called Down. It says this. It says, Of this one thing I am sure. I'm weaker than I thought before. Get Get through to me this simple truth. That all my strength is of no use. So bring me down where I am weak. For that is where I find your strength. Bring me down where I am weak. For that is where I find your strength. The humble will be lifted up and the proud will be made low. God will use our weakness to make all his power known. Your grace is sufficient for me. Your power is made perfect through my weakness.